Today we're considering the early hymns of the church. There are seven which are called antiphons. They reference the Messiah by name and call upon him for blessing. And today we're looking at the fourth antiphon, in which the Savior is called the Key of David. You'll find the name used of our Savior in Isaiah 22.22 and in Revelation 3.8. Welcome everyone. It's a good day to be in God's Word. I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is the Bread of Life. Our program is presented to you by the International Disciple-Making Ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism. You can learn more about our work to bring Christ to the nations by going to traincpe.org. Or to learn about our Missions Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, go to breadoflifeboise.org. A translation of the fourth antiphon from the Latin reads as, O key of David and scepter of the house of Israel, you open and no one can shut. You shut, and no one can open. Come and lead the prisoners from the prison house, those who dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death. Well, it's said that every road in England leads to London. And we might understand that every verse in the Bible leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we follow it and we understand it and we make the right turns in the passage, we'll see that all of them and all the passages and verses of Scripture are guiding us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke chapter 24, after the Lord Jesus had resurrected from the dead, he gathered before his disciples and he showed him how from Moses and from the prophets and from the Psalms, all these things had to be fulfilled for they write about him. And he said another place that these Scriptures testify of me. They bring us to Him. They direct us to Him. And 750 years before the Lord Jesus came to the earth and was born in that manger, Isaiah spoke of a man named Eliakim. And he referenced a position that was given to Eliakim. 750 years or further after that, the Apostle John, in a vision, saw Christ being presented and a message coming to him from angels declaring that Jesus Christ is everything that Eliakim was only in type, that he was the complete fulfillment of everything that had been designated to Eliakim, that Isaiah had designated to Eliakim was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. We're going to look at that, and we want to understand that. And so that's where we're going to start this morning, and just understanding from Isaiah 22. And you take a moment and turn to 22, because we're going to be here for the most part of our message this morning, to understand it. We want to understand the, the background in which Eliakim is introduced to us, Then we'll look at the man Eliakim and the responsibilities that were given to him and what is prophesied about him. And then finally, we'll look to the Lord Jesus as a fulfillment of everything that is anticipated or typified in this man Eliakim. The first thing you need to see in this background is that there's a test that's taking place and a test that's been failed. And as a result, a judgment that's been prophesied. You take tests to reveal to you whether something is good or bad, whether you pass the test or you don't pass the test. I have a very bad toothache this morning. It is affecting the whole right side of my mouth. It's so bad when it really kicks up on me, I can't tell which tooth is bad. It's every tooth is inflamed. On Thursday, I actually went to the dentist to figure out which tooth it was to see if we get it dressed. And you know what they do is they tap on each tooth. So he's going around my mouth tapping on each tooth and nothing happened. I said to him, you know, this is like a dog that doesn't do a trick. You know, when you want to show your friend because nothing was happening. Then he touched it with cold ice, went around each one of them, hit every single one of them. Nothing, nothing happened. Well, he says, I don't really think it's anything serious. It'll calm down. And I left and I went home and I had a cup of hot coffee. Heat. (laughs) Heat 
is what sets it off. And as soon as that hot coffee hit my mouth, it was like my head just was inflamed. And it's only increased every day since then. And fortunately, because I wasn't able to get on Thursday, I, I can't get in to get a root canal until tomorrow afternoon. So we want to make sure that they run the right test and they identify the bad tooth and then that tooth is subject to the proper judgments, right, to resolve the problem. In Isaiah, a test is being made and the test is revealing a failure. As a result, a judgment is taking place. Actually, in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, there's a pronouncement of judgments on all the nations that are around Judah. And so Babylon is judged, and Assyria is judged, and Egypt is judged. All the nations surrounding are judged. But ultimately, in 22, Judah is judged as well. And the reason Judah is judged is because it's failed this test. It's come to the test of whether she will trust in God in the time of trial and she doesn't trust in God in the time of trial. Instead, she actually becomes apostate in her covenant with God, and she turns away from him in the very hour in which it would have been most reasonable for her to turn into him. So this is where we're at in chapter 22. Jerusalem is coming under siege from a powerful nation, and it is facing potential destruction. Her army leaders are about to be made captive, and they're about to be carried away into judgment Isaiah sees in a vision that they're going to be carried away. Their leaders and their army is going to be carried away and their army is not even going to put up a fight. And Isaiah also sees in a vision that there is going to be dead individuals strewn throughout the city, but they don't die as a result of being engaged in a battle. They die as a result of starvation and having succumbed to the vagaries of the siege that's been laid upon them and they have no resources. And in this situation, it's under this vision and under this threat that Isaiah hears the response of the people in the midst of this threat. What he hears in the midst of the threat is laughter. He hears the rousing of voices from the rooftops of the city, melding together in a voice or sound of celebration, even as the city is on the brink of devastation and death, even as battle and warfare and their walls are about to be torn down and starvation is about to come upon them. And let's read these first three verses. The burden against the valley of vision. By the way, there's a bit of irony in the statement of the valley of vision. Jerusalem was on a mountaintop. That's where you get your visions. That's where you see things. Valleys are not the places where you see extensive visions. You're hemmed in. You're closed in. But they are in a valley. They're in a spiritual valley and they cannot see what God is going to do. And so there's a bit of irony in using this idea. The burden against the valley of vision. Against the city that is in a valley and can't see what's ahead of them. What ails you now that you've all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city? Your slain men are not slain with a sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. As you read on, you'll see that as a result of this, Isaiah and this vision that he has, he's prompted to weep. He can't be consoled as he weeps over the situation and the circumstances that are coming upon the city. And Isaiah is basically asking a rhetorical question. He, he's saying, what's wrong with you now? 
that you've all gone up to the housetops and are filling the city with the noise of celebration when the outcome that is facing you is a humiliating defeat and death. Isaiah will describe what's going to be happening to them. They're going to be facing trouble and perplexity and treading down and the tearing down of their walls. And God is going to be removing his protection from Jerusalem. The people have made some practical steps to somehow endure the siege, but they've not looked to God in all of this. They've not repented. They've not wept for their unfaithfulness to God. They've not searched themselves to make themselves right before God, their protector. Instead, in the face of this inevitable destruction, they've responded by throwing one last self-indulgent party, one last pursuit for their own pleasures. Let's read about that in verses 12 and 13. Here's what Isaiah writes. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating meat, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So in truth, historically, although it's not yet entirely determined in the different commentators, no one seems to be able to agree at what exactly is the moment at which Isaiah is referring to that this took place. We know as the story goes on that this is in a sense a dry run for Jerusalem. This is not the time in which Jerusalem will be vacated. It will happen later on. He's seeing through to a moment later on when this very thing will happen to Jerusalem, but it doesn't happen at this very moment. The final blow of destruction does not come. They will not be completely destroyed in this moment, but it's a test from God. And it's a test that they fail miserably, and as a result, God brings his judgment upon them. A day of complete destruction of her walls and a complete vacating of her armies will take place. And the slowed starvation of those within her will take place, but it's not at this time. But she's failed the test. She's failed. Jerusalem has failed to respond appropriately in the moment that this is coming against them. This should be a time in which there's some soul searching and sobriety and setting themselves right and seeking God and turning to Him and asking God to deliver them, but instead they consign themselves to what's before them and decide, let's just indulge ourselves one last time. Here's God's sentence against them. It's in verse 14. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord of hosts. I'll just say to you that we probably should note that the final act of apostasy or turning away from God is an unwillingness to render proper fear to him in the presence of judgment. In the presence of judgment, it's still not to turn to him and face him. These people won't face their reality. They are whistling while not just passing through the graveyard, but they're whistling into the way of the graveyard, and they're not responding, and they'll bury themselves in thoughtless amusements before what should provoke careful, circumspect analysis of their life. Here's a quote from John Oswald. He's a commentator, and how he describes it, I think, is quite suitable. To put this experience in modern terms, we may imagine the situation in our own country in the wake of a nuclear attack. Those who remain alive, expecting to die in a further attack or of radiation poisoning, could turn to God in repentance and faith, or they could engage in one last orgy of looting, indulgence, and passion. Which course we would choose would say volumes 
about the true nature the true nature of their commitments are being revealed just the other day I was speaking to a woman who is having serious surgery she has cancer throughout her body and on Tuesday she's going to be going in for surgery and so I called her to see how she was doing and pray for her she lives in another city a long ways away and as we were speaking together she started giving me some instructions she gave instructions on whether if she doesn't make it what she wants her funeral to be like the hymns that she wants sung the passages she wants read she talked about I don't have any fear I have confidence I have trust in what God has done for me I'm resting in his salvation she did some soul searching I do at times wonder if I've really given him what I should have given him lived as I should and I asked him to forgive me and that's the right response you know what I told her I said you know what I think you're gonna live longer than me I think you're gonna be alright let's pray that God takes you through this and you're alright but she had a dry run here she's having hopefully let's pray a dry run like Jerusalem but she's giving the right response Jerusalem doesn't does not come up with the right response and now what we have next is response of the city kind of localized in one individual by the name of Shebna. Shebna is introduced to us as this steward Shebna. Usually when you introduced an individual in the Old Testament, you would not only introduce the individual, but you'd say what family is from. You'd give the name of his father as well, but his father is not mentioned. He's just all by himself. This servant Shebna, it's an introduction of contempt. And he is what we might say the prime minister of Judah. We understand the duties that have been given to him and the responsibilities that have been given to him because they will be shifted from him to Eliakim and we'll read about those duties that are given to Eliakim. But we have to understand first, they belong to Shebna. Thanks for joining us today at the Bread of Life. We'd love to hear from you. Go to breadoflifeboise.org and follow the links to send us a message of encouragement or a prayer request. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.